You ready? Let's do this. There we go. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Grow Oklahoma podcast show. I'm the host, Dr. Ogunsoya or Dr. Mel. And this is the Grow Oklahoma podcast where we highlight clinical and translational research in Oklahoma, the people behind the research and those who support them. And today I have a wonderful guest on the podcast. And I should say that it's always so exciting to have people on the show. I know podcasting can be a very intimidating medium, but to have people just jump in blindly and be like, you know, I'm going to give it a go. That's always exciting. So we can always to share your stories. So who is um, our guest today? She's a professor chair of the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences and holds the Richard T. Anderson Chair of Neuroscience at the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy. She has served as the past chair of the Neuropharmacology Division of the American Society of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics and also as as chair of the executive community of the Wisdom at OUHSC. She's originally from Norman, Oklahoma. She earned her postdoctoral training at Memorial Sloan Kettering's Cancer Center in New York City with Dr. Gabriel Pasternak. Prior to joining the faculty at the OU College of Pharmacy in 2006, she served, she spent 11 years at the University of Houston College of Pharmacy, three of them as vice chair and director of graduate studies. And as a PI or co-PI, she has received over $7.5 million, my goodness, in federal, state, and philanthropic grant funding, she has over 70 peer-reviewed papers and chapters on the regulation and contribution of neuropeptides and their receptors to traumatic stress, brain injury, pain, and opioid tolerance. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Dr. Kelly Standifer to the podcast today. Wow. <laughs> Wow, this is amazing. Like what you've done so far and your accomplishments and it's such an honor to be able to um, share your story. And I cannot wait to even unravel, you know, the woman behind all of this accomplishment. So thank you. Thank you, Mo. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start from the beginning. Can you just share your journey to becoming a, a professor, like how you grew up, your childhood and um, all of that? Mm. Well, I was a bookworm and I would take every opportunity I could to read and I thought that my goal was to become a neurosurgeon and uh, so I got into college and I love science and I I um, went to Duke and when I when I uh, went to Duke I realized that it was going to be very hard to to achieve that goal because a good 25% of the other students there also wanted to go into medicine. So it was, uh, it it was an interesting realization, but I realized that I could achieve my study of the brain by also going into graduate school. And I had a work study job in a lab in the psychiatry department at Duke doing some animal work and, and learning how to do animal behavior and I realized that this was really what I wanted to do. The lab work was caught my fancy, so I got it. I applied to graduate school in pharmacology, and uh, went to graduate school at the University of Florida in the pharmacology department there. And um, and that's where the journey started. Well, I mean. <laughs> 
thank you for sharing that, especially how you decided you went to do medicine, but then seeing just another opportunity. So the dream has still remained the same, even though the channel um, differed as far as the medicine, but now you're also doing research. Were there any incidents in your childhood that kind of, you know, predicted this path you're on as far as exploring, you know, traumatic stress, brain injury? As a child, was this something you were interested in or how did that come about? Well, I, uh, my dad was in this really bad motorcycle accident before he even married my mother. So he was, uh, 17 or 18, I believe. And he ended up spending three months in a body cast in the hospital. And so we had this whole book that my aunt had put together pictures of him to keep any, anybody else in the family from riding a motorcycle (laughs) was her her goal. (laughs) But, um, He's, he did suffer some long-term effects in that it affected his ability to focus sometimes. Mm. And, uh, you know, so his attention span, his, his patience was, was thinner. And, and, you know, he did, he did develop some depression later. So I don't know if that contributed to that, but, uh, having studied it now, I can see that those can sometimes be very long-term, uh, effects resulting from, from the brain injury. Hmm. But I've always just was very interested in the brain and how it worked. So I don't know if that originated from my father, but that that may have planted the seed. Yeah, we can we can like discount that because you know, um, especially having a family album of what not to do and never riding bicycles. I can imagine that kind of um, served as an inspiration. And I imagine that way back then they, we don't even have a lot of discoveries like we have now, as far as you know, the link between TBI and you know mental health issues and all that. So thanks for Mm-mm. thanks for that. Um, I can't imagine it's been quite easy, you know, um, being a female and all of these accomplishments you've had. Um, before we even talk about just, you know, that, I'm curious to know, just telling us a little bit about your research and projects you've been engaged in. I know it's focused on traumatic stress and brain injury and pain, but for like, you know, people that are naive to research, how would you describe what you do? Well, so uh, when I was a postdoc uh, with, with Gavro Pasternak, we studied his primary goal as, as a neurologist was to develop a better um, pain, me- severe pain medication that would not produce respiratory depression or dependence. dependence yeah. <laughs> and so, so we were studying, you know, traditional mu agonists and characterizing uh, some new ones. We test a lot of new ones that he would receive from collaborators and things. And and so I was very interested in in endogenous um, peptides, neuropeptides that worked on those same receptors. And then when I was uh, towards the end of my postdoctoral uh, period there, they cloned a new receptor that was part of that opioid receptor family. At first, they cloned this receptor, but they didn't have the peptide for it. So it was kind of an unknown. It was an orphan. They called it the orphan receptor mm-hmm. because they did not have the peptide, the peptide for it. For it yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the next year, they, they found, they cloned the receptor. But so I started studying this particular opioid peptide and its receptor because it, we didn't know very much about it. And as as I studied, I did the basic pharmacology and, and cell signaling and regulation of the protein. But 
when I when I went when I moved here to the University of Oklahoma, people had had done quite a bit of physiology with it. And I thought, you know, this peptide seems to really serve a function as a neuromodulator in the brain and sort of set the tone for um, baseline levels of pain sensitivity and it's released with stress. And and there was evidence that as with a big uh, traumatic stressor that you'd get high levels of this peptide released that contribute to several clinical reports had collected serum and CSF from pain patients and found high levels of the peptide in both plasma or CSF in patients that were experiencing pain. So I thought, well, maybe it gets released and it contributes to the pain states associated with different traumatic conditions. And uh, and so then we we kind of moved more into animal work away from the cultured cells because you can't really study that in a dish. So we we started doing more animal work, which which I'd learned how to do that when I was in Gav's lab, but had really focused more on 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 uh, cell cultures related experiments. So so that allowed us to study levels of this peptide after different conditions and in different parts of the brain and um, biological fluids, either um, serum or CSF, and uh, and sure enough, we found that after the animals were exposed to a traumatic stressor, that levels would would increase um, in the CSF, and we'd also see them increase a little bit more slowly in the in the serum, and it, they would go up in the different brain regions at different times. So that we tried to just slowly pick that apart and see how that related to changes in behaviors or um, uh, and changes in, in uh, the expression of different uh, inflammatory substances. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I imagine that the work you're doing, there's also a lot of implication to it because we know, you know, um, with opioid addiction has become a hot topic issue. I don't know if you've seen the um, Netflix, um, well, there's always a Netflix um, documentary. There's one that came out painkiller on Purdue Pharmacy and we've, you know, there's a lot of noise and also a lot of virtue as well when it comes to you know, pain and addiction. How do you like focus on just the things you're doing and not let all of the noise like bother you? I, I watched the first episode of that mm-hmm. and it was so depressing. <laughs> I have to really be in the right mood to, yeah. to watch the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I think I try to focus on understanding how um, these neuropeptides work and then what we're doing now is we're trying to um, find a partial agonist that we think can help modulate the effects of the elevated OFQ in the, in the brain while allowing enough activity at that receptor so that it can do its normal function everywhere else. So this peptide seems to um, modulate pain sensitivity, anxiety levels, um, blockade of the receptor has been shown to Im- improve mood and um, what else? Oh, and improve cognition. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we see with both uh, traumatic stress in a PTSD model as well as in 
uh, traumatic brain injury model is that the animals become more anxious um, and they have trouble learning um, and remembering things. And and if we're doing a a traumatic, um, if we're looking at the changes after a traumatic brain injury, we see that the animals have difficulty balancing on a rotating rod, which is which is a measure of a vestibular function and, and locomotion. And and if you block, and it gets worse when levels of these peptide are high. And so uh, if, you, if you block the activity of this peptide, you can improve their performance on the road rod test. Um, they recover more quickly from the injury than, than animals with a functional receptor. And... Um, and and they're less anxious. So so that that was our goal. So we had to identify a chemist who had produced um, a bunch of different molecules uh, that bound to this receptor, but had different levels of activity. So that's what our grants are looking at now is is whether this partial agonist. So it, it according to cell culture studies, it appears to have about 25% uh, activation of the receptor or 30%. So we thought, okay, that should tamp down the mm, 50% increase that we see in peptide levels mm-hmm. and allow everything to come back to normal sensitivity-wise in the body. So we'll we'll see if that works. We've got a grant from the Department of Defense to look at um, modulation of different um, pathologies that occur after a closed head concussive injury and one to measure changes that occur after an impact directly to the brain itself. And with that one, we're also measuring the the ability of this peptide to modulate um, blood flow in the brain. So because after injury, after brain injury, you get a decreased blood flow. Yeah. 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 Wow. I feel like with the kind of work you do, it's it's never going to end as far as just because, you know, humans, pain is still part of life. You know, the, mm-hmm. it's it's something that we all have to experience in one form or the other. And so it's thank you so much for sharing just what you do and the role of your work in the broader context of you know, our lives as well. Now, um, you have been through several institutions. You know, you talked about University of Houston, even when you where the other place you went to get your postdoc. How would you say this diverse academic, and then you're, you're here now at the University of Oklahoma, you know, and you've been here for a while. How would you say these diverse academic environments have shaped your teaching and research philosophy? I think um, teaching-wise, you're just always looking for the best ways to communicate the information you're trying to impart to your students based on on each class because it does preferences change with with different incoming classes of students and and today's students are really seem to have shorter attention span and they're they're used to getting their information in sound bites short sound bites so so really try to break down each um 
particular concept that I'm trying to impart in smaller chunks and then separate those with, you know, a discussion or a quiz question or something just so that they can sort of get take that in and, yeah. and apply it to something yeah. and then um, and try to move on. And, and it helps if you can include some. I, I, I look for I'm a big fan of cartoons. And so I'm always looking oh, at nice. cartoons that have something to do with pain that I can interject in there or talk about different types of pain. It may not be real pain, but pains in the neck and, um, and at least get them uh, a little bit of, of, of a break between different concepts. But I, I've been, I've become over time much more cognizant of not just throwing a million things at them at 60 miles an hour and continue that for the whole 50 minutes. So, I don't know if it's being in different places or just experience, but but it, I've really tried to crystallize it to major points instead of lots of details. Yeah, yeah. I think it's all of what you said, plus, you know, also the generational gap, you know. Um, I'm finding that because of just how fast-paced information can be. I mean, we have, like, for example, when TikTok became a thing, 60 seconds, you know, people can like talk about a whole story in 60 seconds. Like, how do you beat that as a lecturer? You know, you have to <laughs> move right. with the times. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but you have to use your whole two hours and then carve objectives and then say a lot but not say too much. Uh, <laughs> times have changed. The good old days. <laughs> um, You've also had a, a, lot, a little bit of pivot in your career. Um, while I imagine this can be quite exhilarating, but they also have their challenge. What advice would you give to those who are considering a shift, especially within academia and research, and how to like blend those together? The the what was the first part of your question? Oh, like um, career pivots, you know? Oh, pivots, yeah, yeah. yeah, pivots, yeah. Well, I think if you find yourself just not really enjoying what you're doing, then you really need to sit back and say, should I still be doing this? Should I change something else? Like I was much, um, it was a big pivot moving into more animal directed studies. And it was, it really re-peaked my interest. I think you have to make some kind of, even if it's a, a pivot in the direction of your research, if not your um, the title, like it, taking on administrative things was also a pivot, but, but sometimes you just need to change your focus a little bit to keep yourself interested and also to keep the funding stream going because at different times, different, um, funding agencies will have different focuses. Yes. So like the, the one of the reasons we started paying more attention to Department of Defense funding is they're really focused on TBI. issues affecting military personnel, yeah. which yeah. was pain, PTSD, TBI. Yeah. And that allowed us to um, to ask more what I thought were directly relevant questions instead of spending yeah. so much time going to <laughs> really discreet little mechanisms, but to sort of answer the bigger question first. So I think trying to maintain interest and enjoyment in your life is an important reason for a pivot. I I mean, you've, you've said it so brilliantly. And thank you so much for sharing that, especially the importance of, you know, just a little bit of joy. I think a lot of us think research should not have joy. It should have a little bit of joy. It shouldn't give you joy all the time, 
But if you find yourself <laughs> so just constantly drowning in it, then maybe it's time for you to kind of like shift focus or think of something else to do or think about how you can modify your current environment, right? Um, let's, yeah. let's speak about grant funding. Um, you probably don't remember this, but you were one of the first people I approached when I thought about applying for the DOD. And your insights were so, so, so helpful in helping me get my, my grant, keeping my grant and then the report. <laughs> you were very, very, you know, clear about make sure you get that report going and make sure you do this <laughs> <laughs> it really meant a lot to me because prior to that, all I heard about was NIH, which, you know, has a lot of merit and is one of the largest funders for research. But a lot of us tend to overlook other mechanisms which can help us, you know, answer the same question. So the DOD for me was that um, groundbreaking um, opportunity to get funded as an early career investigator. So I want to say thank you so much for creating time for me and um, inspiring me as well. So, Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, you have an extensive grant funding experience, over $7.5 million. That's amazing so here are your flowers what strategies would you say you have found to be the most successful in securing funding that has aligned with your research objectives and um, after that I would like to know the story of your first grant and the emotions it brought to you (laughs) I think one of the most important things is to make sure you're applying for a grant for which you're meeting all the criteria that you're what you're proposing to do is meets one of their focused objectives that they're interested in um, answering, one of their questions or focuses, and that you're using, that you're coming into this proposal with all the required elements. So some proposals, like an R21, you don't have to have any preliminary data at all, especially some kinds of those, certain certain types of those, that they don't want to see any preliminary data at all. Whereas most grants, you need to have enough preliminary data to to validate your approach that you're taking or the feasibility of your study for every aim when sometimes every technique, if it's something that you haven't published with. So it's just really a waste of your time and energy and the reviewer's time and energy if you try to submit something to for a grant proposal that you don't have all of those elements or it's really not your proposal isn't directed towards what they're most interested in. So I think spending the time to find something that aligns really well with what you're trying to do and the question you're trying to answer is critical. And then you have to be very, I don't want to say stubborn, because <laughs> sometimes stubborn isn't good if, if you're not paying attention to their comments. But yeah. you have to be, you know, you have to be dedicated to trying to see this through. But you also have to have thick skin, because... Oh those reviewers are going to come back with comments that are both constructive and not terribly constructive. Mm. So you have to be able to discern which pieces are most important for you to go through because you can resubmit if you, if you can address what they thought were important weaknesses, maybe you needed more data or you hadn't considered potential uh, end result. So you can include that in your discussion and sort of test for that. But you, um, I, I'm just very good at, at sort of letting stuff roll right off my back and just focusing on the constructive parts. And I think if you can do that, it'll help. It helps get your grant funded and, uh, and, and allows you to do the work that you'd like to do. But sometimes you have to be very patient. <laughs> 
which was hard for me to learn. <laughs> yeah, because patience means more time. It means being patient with time. And what don't you have as a scientist? Time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah. Can you share with us the story of your first grant and the emotions it brought to you? Oh, so the first grant. It was a, a small little grant. It was the Wendy Wilkes Cancer Fund. And I got it when I was still in New York. So I I sort of moved during the eight years I was there. I moved from a postdoc to research associate to an assistant lab manager, which is really the equivalent of an assistant research professor mm -hmm. position. And so I was eligible to apply for grants. And um, this was just a small grant. I think it was uh, set up in memory of, of um, a little girl's, her family set this up and it was, Uh, it was to help fund research related to uh, some of the ill effects that, that she experienced when she was being treated for cancer. And so mm -hmm. I, my, it was just, I think maybe $17,000. And it was to, to work on some opioid receptor related thing to reduce dependence. And, uh, and I was so excited because it was the first one I'd ever submitted and it came through. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, when that happens when everything aligns you know <laughs> yeah that's right it's a sign you're yeah, on a roll yeah even though it's one i know <laughs> <It's a metaphor>. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to take those little victories and then yes. I'd, i'd also submitted an r29 application which was they don't have those now but it's it was like a an early r01 for early investigators and uh and that got very good scores and it, and I had very constructive reviews so then I was able to resubmit that and address the reviewers concerns so I was able to get that funded about the same time I was moving to Houston so. wow so you came in with some money that's always good Oh, yeah. well, uh, so it, theoretically I came in with money, but they shut the budget down. So it was no. like four months late arriving. <laughs> so every uh, time I hear, uh, every time I hear about a budget shut down, I just uh, remember that. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And it's funny how everybody, everybody asks this question about their first grant. They always remember the moment and they always remember the dollar amount to the pennies. <laughs> <laughs> but then I imagine that before then you've probably written a lot of grants, which, you know, They didn't get funded. I think it goes back to what you said about being thick-skinned and not giving up, right? Once you get yeah. that grant, you hardly remember the other grants you wrote that didn't get funded. You know, of course, they might be painful, but remember there's almost joy around the corner, so don't give up, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Which leads me to my next question about grant rejection. This is very common in academia. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things my mentor told me about. You need to learn how to accept rejection. Well, how do you stay motivated and resilient in the face of setbacks? Because I imagine that for that seven point something million dollars you've gotten, you've also had a lot of rejections, but we don't really talk about that. So how do you stay motivated and what kind of tips would you like to recycle to um, people upcoming like us? Well, so for instance, back in 2014, after we'd had our first um, DOD grant to study um, PTSD and, and the role of this neuropeptide in, in modulating some of this, the effects of PTSD, I submitted a grant to NIH mm -hmm. to look at, so we'd had a, we'd studied PTSD and we'd, we'd studied one model of traumatic brain injury. And... So I submitted this grant and I said, you know, these are 
highly comorbid. If you have a TBI, you almost always have experienced PTSD as well as a result of that, especially if it's a military-related event. And, and then in PTSD patients, it's not uncommon at all for them to have experienced a TBI. Mm. So I said, you know what, let's, let's look at some of the relationships between this peptide and, and these two different types of traumatic stressors when they're separate and together. And they came back and said, you can't measure them together because how would you, Quantify, how would yeah. you Define tease that. apart what it means? Well, the t- two of the three grants I have right now are to study TBI with and without PTSD because they realize you, you have to study those together because that happens together. They're <laughs> so, yeah. so part of that is the stubbornness. If you think that your idea is really good, and, and oh God, this took 12 more, <laughs> took 12 more years to get those grants, but <laughs> <laughs> now they know better. Because somebody didn't give up somewhere. Sometimes you're ahead of the field yes. in terms of yes. your ideas yes. of importance. Yes, so. yes. Because if you think about it, it's your peers who bring in these grants, right? And if they're not brought up to speed with what you're doing, it might take a lot of time. But thank you for not giving up. Because I imagine <laughs> I've had a lot of discoveries since then. Um, I probably should have asked this question a while back, but let me just do that now. You, you talk a lot about peptides, right? For those that mm-hmm. are very, um, you know, wet behind the ears when it comes to that, what are peptides and I was trying neuropeptides and what role did it play in understanding, you know, traumatic stress, brain injury, and pain? So a peptide is just a really small protein. It, it, these are opioid peptides, so endorphins that you think about, you know, that are released in times of stress or that are associated with what's considered a runner's high. People who run long distances a lot are, get release of, release of these endorphins, and it's supposed to make them enjoy the running, which I must say I've never experienced enjoyment of running. But, <laughs> but, who has? But, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but these peptides, so, so the enkephalins, which are part of that family, are very small, five amino acids, um, whereas the the peptide that I'm studying, nociceptin and dynorphin, a related peptide, are both 17 amino acids long. Mm-hmm. So they're they're pretty big size chunk, but they're released by neurons in the brain and they bind to receptors and peptides really don't produce a rapid action in the brain. They really modulate the fast acting neurotransmitters, which, which you know, um, produce faster responses. And so I think the fact that these opioid peptides are present in so many different parts of the brain besides just the reward pathway and pain modulatory pathways is because uh, they're, they're, they're trying to serve a modulatory function uh-huh. in general and in different, in different brain regions. So they, they're tougher. They've not been as big a focus, I think, for as a target identification um, some of these bigger neuropeptides because of the modulatory role they pay. It, it's much easier to say, okay, your blood pressure's up. We're going to give a blocker of the hormone that's causing your blood pressure to go up. But sometimes there's so many different pieces that are related that if you could just partially tamp down uh, or, or ramp up a response of something in the brain, you might, the idea is you'd see less adverse effects while restoring the normal the normal homeostasis so i think these peptides are in there to help um uh so like endorphin if it's released it 
It's released with stress, with a big stressor, and it's what's thought to allow people who, if they've been injured, if their house is on fire, but they've still been injured, it allows them to pull people out of the house. And, and uh. all these heroic acts are thought to be associated with big endorphin rush because it, the endorphin is an analgesic. So it allows you to sort of uh, disregard any injury pain, to yourself. Yeah. 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 And, um, and so all these other little pe- neuropeptides that are present in your brain serve a similar role in, in short acting or modulatory effect on different parts of your brain. Thank you. Wow, that's, that's, I can understand the picture better now. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk about just, you know, um, you as a person. So I imagine as a female and the positions you've held and, you know, all of your accomplishments, it hasn't been quite easy. And you also even alluded to the fact that um, some of your research ideas, it took a while for you to get funded because, you know, the funders were still behind at the times. Um, how would you say, what are some of the protective factors that have helped you get to where you are? Because um, you, I mean, you've, you're very well accomplished. And um, for women who might be listening to this, what are some female-specific um, tips you can provide as far as um, getting to where you are and also maintaining that position of leadership in everything you do? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> um, I think you have to, you have to have confidence in yourself. Um, you know, we, we all go through phases where we're doubting our ability to do something or knowledge, but, um, I am by nature very stubborn. And if you tell me I can't do something, then that only serves to motivate me to, to try harder. So I think that's been beneficial in some aspects. Um, and if, and if you're not able to get those big grants, you absolutely have to get your funding from smaller sources. Okay. So I would get shorter term funding through the state or through other funding sources so that you can keep your research going. Um, I think I, one of the things I did was to not assume that any, any setback I experienced was because I was a female. Mm. Now, some of them may have been, but, but there, it was not explicitly obvious. Um, so I, I just try to, to approach things as a man would and just proceed through and it, it's helpful if you've got a good network of support mm. either females or males doesn't matter as long as you've got somebody you can vent to <laughs> yep. talk about the issues that arise and, and help you deal with them I think you can't get through this in a nice a healthy way if you don't have some kind of a support system and uh, and I think one of the one of the things that wisdom serves is to try to provide that support system for women faculty on this campus and uh, and so I've always tried to be involved in activities that um, included women or that was that were focused on helping women faculty advance I, it, we're kind of fortunate in pharmacy in that there's always been a pretty good balance between males and females. Yeah. Um, though in some of the specific disciplines, it's taken a little bit longer to, to achieve that better yeah. balance. But um, so there's there have been women faculty, but not to the I must say leadership level. It's gotten much better in the last 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's um, really the reminder to not doubt ourselves. I mean, statistically, women tend to have um, the worst case of imposter syndrome. And the higher you go, the more pervasive that becomes. And also the importance of supportive network. And I loved how you just made it very general. It could be male, it could be female. Just finding your support. And there's nothing quite like that. Because in science, we don't work in isolation. So find those people who will cheer you on. Find your mentors, find your sponsors. Find your mm-hmm. coach, you know, find your, your cheerleaders because those are very, very important. And I know you're a very strong advocate for women, especially in leadership. And so let's talk about wisdom, right? Um, <laughs> you served as the chair of wisdom. And um, could you just elaborate on what the group is about? And for those who are yet to join, what are they missing out on? <laughs> so, so I think uh it wisdom was initially established on this campus um it's women in science dentistry medicine and health is the what the acronyms tries to encompass all the different <laughs> colleges on campus and um it's fo- it was established because there was this huge gap not just here but th- they were they were developed to address the gap here in the number of women who moved from associate professor to full professor it's like they just got stalled and and so you'd see men proceeding up the ladder to full professor, but so many women did not. And and a lot of times they didn't even try Tried. to go up mm. to full professor. Mm. And and you know that may not be because they weren't they maybe they weren't encouraged to do so. Um, maybe they weren't told what they needed to do to put them you know to get put up for promotion to full professor. So wisdom was set up to try to address that gap, and um, that, and it, so it would involve um, curriculum vita reviews. So you sit down with a small group of women and go through their CV, or they'd bring their CVs and say, "Okay, what you need to go from from associate professor to full is to, you know, show these different." leadership or contributions at a, at a national level and an international level. So, you know, what is needed based on the university's criteria and your college's criteria to make that move. And it's usually like national recognition to international recognition yeah. and mm-hmm. um, not just applying for grants and getting grants, but serving on grant review committees and chairing grant review committees and, and nationals chairing different committees nationally. So it just providing them with that insight that they may not be getting from their chairs and encouraging them to, if they had these gaps in their CV, what would be the sort of the most expeditious way to fill them and help them choose committee assignments. If it's, they'd never um, chaired a university committee or served on a university committee, then what, which ones might be most beneficial depending on what their role was. Um, and so it, there was a, a lot of that was involved in, and it was mostly done through the academic affairs dean's office, uh, Valerie Williams' office. And so she created this group, and now she's trying to, we're, we're trying to make it a little bit more standalone, though it's still, activities are still supported through her office. So it's, we've tried to increase the number of, of activities that we do and or and the time of days in which we do them in order to be able to to capture the involvement of more women so it's really any woman faculty member on campus is free to attend any of these events our hardest 
the, the most difficult thing I think that we've had is being able to send notifications about our events in a timely fashion <sighs> to everybody on campus because there's been sort of a crackdown, especially in medicine, about large blasts of emails because people tend to ignore oh, yeah. <laughs> their email. Oh, yeah. We're all burnt out. <laughs> well, emailed out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so that's been a challenge. And um, so we're trying to get things scheduled like a semester in advance so that we can put it on the calendar and, and yeah, they can go there. on the big boards that they have around campus and people yeah. can see it. But we've, we've, so we've been trying to include more, um, projects. Like we've got a Pearls of Wisdom, which is a once, we're trying to do it once a month, but that was really too often. So we're doing it four or five times a year now. Um, the first, usually it's the first Wednesday of the month at noon and it's a Zoom event, but it talk about some aspect of academic life that, um, pe- women might have questions about. So we talk about, how to get yourself nominated for an award because that also helps you with promotion. Um, and we've also tried to include activities for, for junior faculty. So we want them to make sure that they're ready for promotion or, and or tenure to associate professor, not just that last move to full professor and, and get them in, involved in the executive committee to help plan some of these things. So we make mm-hmm. sure that we're producing events that they would consider useful because again you've got the generational differences and what I might find fun and interesting a new faculty member may not so yeah. so we're trying to get more input in that regard as well thank you and I think it helps to also get the like the events reminder from like your chair and even from you because I, I can recognize your name on email so okay it's from Kelly so maybe another strategy is to reach out to the chairs and I would say personally for me I found the meetings very very helpful especially the no holds barred approach just talking about the real issues we go through as women like you're hearing accomplished people tell you it's a struggle to do this and that it's a struggle to balance this and that and you're like okay I don't feel alone anymore and I, and I think even the smaller breakout groups and just you know being so hard to heart so i highly recommend any female listening to this on campus um to consider joining the group they're very supportive you can get a lot of mentoring and um get to even know about other things you can um, that can help enhance your process and your work as well still on this topic of you know trying to balance it all i imagine you have a family as well right how do you how do you do it all how tell me how you do it all <laughs> it and was hard stay, stay so collected it was and hard calm. when the girls yeah when the girls were little so both one of my daughters is is 25 now and the other is going to be 21 in november so she's still in college the younger one but it when they when we first moved here, they were in third grade and preschool. So it was, and we live in Norman. So the trick was trying to get home by six o'clock, so we did not have to pay the late fee to the <laughs> to the daycare. <laughs> they were always the last two kids picked up. It, it was sad, but um, I think one one of the things that we did is we always had dinner together. Which, which was challenging when they were on two different soccer teams at one point and practices weren't the same time, but we always ate dinner together and, 
and I think paying attention to the importance of family, even if it's if it's just dinner, if it's just which which the girls will tell me now, it's not just dinner, mom. You cannot imagine nobody else does that anymore. There's just so many. All their friends would say we never eat together. And they were just so excited when they would say, well, you know, we've got dinner. We can't do it right now because we have dinner. But I think that makes a that that provides stability, even if it's that one thing. It provides stability and and it indicates that that family unit is important. And so that was one of the things that sort of resets you. You get you're focusing on dinner and your family for 30 minutes or an hour. And it sort of takes everything else from the top of your mind that was about the day. So you can delay that, thinking about that to-do list for yeah. a few hours. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I mean, I'm taking notes because we have dinner together, but I always feel like it's just never enough. You know, because I work, my husband my husband works as well, our daughter's in daycare, like, a third of the day and my time she comes home is like, my goodness, is already time for dinner? I'm going to spend a lot of time with you. But, um... Thank you for that reminder that even if it's just dinner time, sitting together and having a meal, that's that's something, you know, something to to keep going. So they'll, thank you. they'll really realize how important that was when they get older and they realize none of their friends do that. Okay, I'll keep that going. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I guess um, as we tailor down the conversation, I was just curious to know, um, we've seen the emergence of large language models and artificial intelligence and you know in academia both in teaching and research um, i'm curious to know if you've adopted any of this and if you're yet to how do you see it kind of shift shaping your research or even your teaching practices in the future oh no i have not really <laughs> and that's okay and if i could i would make myself very adept at bioinformatics and the, the ability to process and use larger data sets, which I know is AI is very helpful in that regard. Um, so that would be on my to-do list to, in, <laughs> in terms of learning a new thing. Um, I think the next big thing would be to hire people who can do that for you Yeah, and bring it into your lab. Maybe you may not be the expert, but it could to allow somebody to do that. I know in teaching, there's a big concern about students using AI to write papers or, and it's a, it's certainly a big concern. Now you can't submit a manuscript to just about any journal without them sending it through that detection, um, yeah. a program to see if you've caught co- how much of it's been copied or includes non cited um, work from other people. So it's there, whether you're paying attention to it or not, you're going to be affected by, by that, the fact that it is there. And I think we just have to prepare. We have to make really drive home the idea that you, everything needs to be in your own phrasing. You need to make sure it's all in your own words and cite everything. And we, we both know how hard it is to get students to write. Oh, yes. <laughs> they're used to texting, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they think in little short sentence fragments with no correct spelling. So, <laughs> and it's going to show with the acronyms, and I'm like, I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. I can't keep up. Yeah. So, maybe that's a good excuse to, to really emphasize writing. It's like, okay. When you submit this, you don't want it to come back and have the editor say, "I, you know, this looks like you plagiarized half of it." So, 
getting them to to look at that in their own I know some, what some people are trying to do with AI is to generate something from AI and have on a particular topic and have students parse that out in terms of that of the scientific concepts in there and say, okay, does this make sense? Yeah. Is this valid or is it just pulling out sound bites from all over the internet that really don't put together any cohesive idea or defend it? That's those are very you know great words to kind of ponder on. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I have some bonus questions for you. Um, just to relax and unwind, <laughs> we've talked about the very hard stuff. Uh, so, <laughs> amidst all the many hats you wear and your busy roles, how do you recharge? Are there any hobbies or activities that you prov- that provide balance outside of work for you? So, so I start my day with the Wordle and with the uh, um the spelling bee from yeah. the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and then I do a lot of crosswords and words with friends. So those those are quick things that I can do when I need to try to relax a little bit. I like to work I like to work in the in the garden, my flower garden, but that's been a challenge with the heat. The heat, oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> that's yeah. an expensive hobby to have in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, we we enjoy anything involving a ball. So that's football season now. We're enjoying that tennis, yeah. soccer. Yeah, so <laughs> enjoy a lot of time playing. You're watching a plane. Mm. When I was younger, I loved playing volleyball. Yeah. But it's all limited to watching now. Oh, yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> so fun. Um, is there a skill you've always wanted to learn, but you haven't had the chance to? Mm. Um, like I said, I would love to be well-versed in bioinformatics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mentioned that. Yeah. A, a, non, a non-professional skill? Mm. Painting. I would like to be able to paint. I've like a, like an artist painter? Like... Mm-hmm. That's have you done um sip and paint or those you know little courses you can take that teaches you how to paint stuff by the time you're done? <laughs> I've I've gone the yeah. Pinot's palette. Yeah, those ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the wine improves your yeah, the wine, ability yeah. to paint. And I can, or your tolerance you, for what you've painted. <laughs> In Venus Veritas, right? <laughs> <laughs> and as a researcher, I was studying the brain. I'm sure that could no, 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 that could be very, very poignant for you. Um, if you could swap roles, I you know you talked about um, using cartoons and watching cartoons a lot. If you could swap roles with a fictional character for a day, who would it be and why? Uh, I did not. Oh, how do roles? Yes, like if the oh, fictional swap roles. Yeah, swap roles. Hmm. A fictional character from your cartoons or any of your TV shows that you watch. Yeah. yeah. So one of my favorite, one of my favorite characters is Louise from Bob's Burgers, but I don't think I'd want to be in her position. <laughs> <laughs> I admire the way her brain works, but I don't think I'd want to be her. Uh, maybe Rebecca from Ted Lasso. Oh yeah, she's. I w- I wouldn't mind having that wardrobe for a while. I know she dresses so. I love Ted Lasso. I feel like 
most of life's hard questions can be answered by Ted Lasso episode. Everyone should watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> it's just I just love how it shows the grayness in human characters. Like in movies, in series, you usually have the villain and the superheroes, but you realize that you know what that dichotomy lies in every one of us. Our propensity for good and evil. But then how do you still mm-hmm. move on and, you know... Which do you choose? Exactly. Yeah. Which you have both powers and no one is like inherently evil, you know. They might have good intentions, but do bad acts. You know, Ted Lasso does a good job of that. Plus the humor always helps, you know. Mm-hmm. I love, yes. love, love that show. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> for your younger self, you know, casting your mind back to a younger Dr. Standifar, what advice would you provide? Uh, if you could do that to your younger self, or someone listening who could be in that space right now, what would it be? Mm. I think there would be two two bits of advice. The first would be do not miss an opportunity to connect with family and friends. So especially when you're not, when you're away from home. So I, I just regret every wedding that I missed because I thought it was just going to be too much travel associated with too small a window of time and and if I had to do those over again I would have even if I was driving half of the time I would I would do those um what was the other thing one the other was a professional oh um when I was at Sloan Kettering uh Gavril was always encouraging us to go to grand rounds which were at the ungodly hour of seven in the morning or seven thirty and I'm just like Dude, I work until nine or ten. I can't get up that early. So if I, I, my advice is, everything you do is medically relevant. If you're at the health science center, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, so it's much easier to see the relevance and the and and better understand what the real problems are because you can read. A list of adverse effects of a drug on a bottle but if you're not familiar with seeing patients who experience those you don't know which ones are really the most bothersome for patients Mm -hmm. and if you go to the grand rounds you you glean this kind of information you know so maybe you don't want to get up that ungodly hour every week but but pay attention to the schedule and, and do it for those topics that are relevant to your area of research Thank you. I love those two things you talked about. Don't discount the time you spend with your friends and families. And then um, also everything you do matters. And it might not make sense now, but just keep doing them, right? And I think it will be very, very, it will be a missed opportunity because you talked about, but not to talk about this person. You mentioned his name a lot. Um, that's um, Dr. Gabriel um, Pasternak. I believe he's passed away now for about four years. Yeah, and yes. he's world-renowned for opioids. And it seems like it had a lot of impact on your life. Can you just speak briefly about the role he's had in your life and what it was like being in his lab when you were there? He was, he was, he was really great. He was jolly and so excited about science oh my god his favorite instrument in the lab was the rotavapor because he was really a chemist at heart so he had a, always had a chemist in the lab he had a bunch of pharmacologists he had a molecular biologist once that field took off and then behavioral people and so i was i was there for a long enough period of time that um i got to go through all those different participate in all those different areas and 
and learn from all those people who are experts in those particular areas. But he just could not wait to hear about data. Like he'd Mm. come in in the morning. He'd already been there for a couple hours by the time you got there. But, you know, (laughs) what's new? What's your data? He'd have his coffee cup and he wanted to know what was new. And, and, uh, he was just excited about science and, it made me realize this is why we do this. This is why I'm still here because it's exciting and it's, it's, um, it's motivating. He was especially motivating because he saw he was on call two months out of the year. And then he of course followed his patients the rest of the time, but he saw everybody that came in for neurology consults during those months that he was on call. And you could always tell because he would just look so deflated by the end of the day Mm. because you can't, always help these people right that are especially zone kettering a lot of patients that come in there everything else has failed so so but he would bounce right back you give him a little bit of good data and he was he was good to go so i just um it taught me that that you can stay excited about science that you you really need to work within a team you can do more if you've got a team around you that is contributing in different ways to that science. And it was, it was the first time I was leading groups of people because I sort of managed the lab when I was a more senior person there and, and hiring people and, and trying to get them in line when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do and managing budgets. I learned all that from him. So that was, that was useful. That was useful. But he was very generous with his time. He taught us how to write grants and papers. And and so I got a lot of mentoring stuff from him as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Yes. I'm so sorry for your loss. I just Googled him as a way of having a conversation. And there's a lot of attributes, you know, about him. And everything you said was most, what most people said about him. So I can imagine it's had a lot of impact, not just on your life, but so many other scientists as well. So may his soul keep resting in peace. Thank you. It was also good because he had such a huge lab group over time. I've got a large group of friends oh. that were that we overlapped at different periods of time with yeah. in the lab with him. So that's a great. It's like a family. Do you guys ever get a meet up? Like meet up because it's been it's been going on for like four years. You have like a gaps group where you all just come together and like you know talk about. There's science, a LinkedIn but, group that we've yeah. got. We haven't we don't utilize that enough, but we do get together at meetings. Yeah, subgroups of us yeah, that we're yeah. all attending a particular meeting. Yeah, we did yeah. get together after he died, after COVID, and um, had a big get together. It was like twenty of us with scotch. We all, that was his drink of choice. At the end of the day. <laughs> so regardless of whether we like scotch or not, we all, all drank, drank yeah. a toast to him. Yeah, to Gav. yeah, yeah. Well, finally, would be any um, parting words as we round off the episode. I mean, and then just thank you so much for being part of the podcast. But you're welcome. I think this it's the all the interesting work that gets done at OUHSC is not really most people don't hear about it. And I hope that this is a this is becomes a way for for more people to learn about some of the really interesting stuff that goes on here. So thank you for doing it. I agree. And thank you for being a part of that voice because we want to diversify the voices and, you know, show the people behind all of the great discoveries. So for those who might be wanting to reach out to you, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me on LinkedIn or they can shoot me an email, O-U-H-S, uh, Kelly-Standifer at O-U-H-S-C dot um, E-D-U. 
And especially if you're women faculty on campus, send me ideas for things you'd like to see Wisdom do. Yes, and join Wisdom if you're yet to join as a woman. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Just <laughs> just show up to our events. That's show all we up. have. Very very supportive. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on the show. I got to learn a lot about you, um, the passion that drives you know everything you're doing, and your your tidbits about just seizing the opportunity whenever it comes and whatever your hands find to do, just keep doing it because you never never know. Because I see that the accomplishments you've had has just been. Uh, almost like a collection of these small decisions, but they begin, they be, they rolled into something bigger. And then you not quitting, um, your resilience and just sticking to it. So thank you so much for infusing all of those inspiration into our talk today. It was really, really nice chatting with you, Dr. Standover. Thank you, Dr. Mo. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so right. much. This was fun. All right. So that was the Google Homo podcast with Dr. Standifar. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Don't forget to catch up on other episodes of the podcast from any of your major podcast platforms. We are on Podbean. That's the official host of a podcast. You can also find us on YouTube and Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, of course, on Spotify. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, just reach out to us on email groklahoma podcast at ouhsc.edu as always stay curious i remain your host dr mel bye for now